Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. All right, everybody. Another edition of Rico Bronia. <laughs> this is just brutal. Oh, my God. June is almost over, and the Mets are putting the exclamation point on one of the worst Junes this franchise has ever had. And that's saying something, because a few years ago, they had one of the biggest June swoons you'll ever see. But in 2023, going into the last day of June, where they take on the San Francisco Giants, the New York Mets are 7-18. and 18. The New York Mets lost every series they played in the month of June with the exception of one, a two-game split against the New York Yankees. That's it. Outside of that, you want to go through all of them? They got swept by Toronto. They got swept by Atlanta. Remember that? That feels like 10 years ago. The Mets were somewhat in the NL East race when they played those three games against Atlanta. They got swept by them. They lost two out of three to Pittsburgh. They had the fart in the wind split against the Yankees. They lost two out of three to the St. Louis Cardinals. They lost two out of three to the Houston Astros. They lost two out of three to the Philadelphia Phillies. And now they've lost three out of four to the Milwaukee Brewers. Here's the good news. I'm going to give everybody a little piece of good news. (laughs) I don't know if this is good news. We are here forever. Okay, the Rico Bronia is not going to go away when everyone else in the media goes away from talking about this dumpster fire known as the New York Mets. Like, I will, when I'm on the radio, talk less about the New York Mets at some point. Don't hold that against me. It's my job. And there's going to come a point where people aren't going to care about how crappy the Mets are. But I promise you this. The Rico Bronia will be here throughout the entire summer, throughout the entire fall, into this incredible offseason. So do not think for a second that as the Mets dip into irrelevance, that we're going anywhere. We're not. So we will be a therapy session for those diehards that will continue to watch this garbage baseball team every single night. Because you know I will. You know I'll be right there with you. Now, here's what we're going to get to on this edition of the Rico. We will discuss Steve Cohen's press conference from Wednesday. We will discuss the final three games of this series. Uh, We touched on the first game of this series because, remember, we did a drive-home podcast, if you missed it, after that brutal opener. So we'll talk about this series against Milwaukee, the actual baseball. We will discuss the Steve Cohen press conference, and we'll look to the next series coming up. (laughs) In which maybe, maybe they'll turn it all around. But that doesn't seem likely at all. Uh, Let me start with this series. We'll talk about these games, and then we'll get into Steve Cohen. David Peterson on Tuesday night, and it should not be forgotten, because in the midst of all the losing, and in midst of all the guys that we're going to spend time ripping for having disastrous seasons, and in the midst of ripping Buck Showalter for some bizarre managerial moves, David Peterson's call-up was something I was highly critical of, 
was something that most Met fans were highly critical of. And in the first inning, really the first two innings of the game on Tuesday, I thought it was all going to be prophetic that David Peterson was going to come up to the major leagues facing a Brewer team that scores about four runs per game and just struggle and just get bombed and actually add to an ERA that was actually 8.08 coming into Tuesday's game. But we have to all give him credit, especially in that first inning when he's walking back-to-back guys and the Brewers are set up with the bases loaded and one out, no one Miller up, and we all thought the same thing. David Peterson is about to get his ass kicked. <laughs> we, we hardly knew ye, David. You came back up. And you're about to get pounded by one of the worst offenses in the National League. And he stunningly, stunningly got Owen Miller to ground into a double play. And then he danced through a minor issue in the second inning. And then he pitched a one, two, three, third. And then again in the fourth inning, he puts the first two guys on base. And again, it looks as if David Peterson is about to have a game implode right in front of him. He had a game like that. I think it was against Atlanta earlier this season at City where he was able to get through, I think it was the first four innings, and had one bad inning, and it did him in. And I thought fourth inning, two on nobody out, David Peterson was going to have that one bad inning. And again, gets a huge double play, got Luis Urias to run one over, and he gets through the fourth inning with a big strikeout of Brian Anderson, who's a med killer. Gets through the fifth. Gets through the sixth. And you look down, and David Peterson gave you six scoreless innings. And David Peterson threw 110 pitches. Buck actually pushed him through that sixth inning, which I loved. It was great to see. See, this entire podcast is not about just ripping every dumb thing Buck Showalter does. It's not about ripping every overrated piece of crap on this Met team. Oh, no. Did I do that again? I apologize. They're playing baseball like crap. All right. Have we made that clear? All right. Great. Good. David Peterson was awesome. So uh, let me throw him the bouquet. The Met offense was awesome on Tuesday night. They beat up Julio Turan, which was stunning, especially Julio Turan has always been a Met killer, always back in his days with the Atlanta Braves. He was perfect through three. So before Domingo Herman was perfect on Wednesday, I could have sworn Julio Turan was going to be perfect at City Field. And the Met offense woke up. Brandon Nimmo hit a couple of home runs. Francisco Lindor hit a home run. Daniel Vogelback actually hit a home run, and it was that rare night. We don't get a lot of these. A rare, rare night where the offense was good, the starting pitching was good, the bullpen was whatever. They had a big lead, so it doesn't matter that uh, Jeff Brigham looked bad and gave up a couple of runs. It was a rare good night. So, great. And that was all in response to not only Billy Epler having a press conference in which he did not speak like a human being, he talked, I'm not even going to repeat the quotes that he had because he just, he doesn't talk like a regular person. Yeah. (laughs) When, When we were listening to Billy's comments on the air, Craig and I, we were just laughing about how he was saying things. Like, you know, the forecast was expected to be uh, exponent. It's like, stop. We suck. Just say it. The pitching's been bad. Just say it. It's all you got to do. Don't have to get too cute. So after Billy Epler talks to the media and Steve Cohen puts out a tweet that he's going to talk to the media, the Mets respond by winning a nice, neat, and tidy baseball game 7-2. to I told this story very quickly on the air. 
so I won't spend too much time on it here. But I actually watched this game at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was really strange. I got home, and I guess it was a combination of just being so bothered by all the losing. But I was also really tired. I wasn't feeling great for whatever reason. And I said to my wife, I'm going right to sleep. And she was confused. Like, really? You're going to go right to sleep? I said, yeah. I'll wake up at some point. I will definitely watch every pitch of the Met game. I'll score it. I'll do all my weird, losery things. But I'm not doing it now. And I went to bed, and Hoff, I slept like a baby for six and a half hours. And it was great. It was spectacular. And when I woke up at, it was after two. It may have been like later than that because I started texting people at four o'clock in the morning. So I think I finished the game in the fours. Um, It was great. I watched the Met game at two o'clock in the morning. I had no idea. I saw them win. And it's actually a, a trick that I think we may have to use in the future. Because if they had lost like some kind of brutal game, which they would do the next two nights, I didn't have to go back to sleep angry. It would just be, okay, they lost. Let me try to move on with my day and do something else, as opposed to going to sleep angry. So I had a great experience watching the Mets at 2.30 in the morning, Pete. See, I I, I don't know, man. Like The other day, I, I worked a late-night shift. I went home, and I slept, and I, I woke up as the Mets were blowing a game, and that just set my whole day wrong. Ah, so, so you think it could set a bad tone by doing what I did? Oh for man, the next it ru- day, yeah, it ruined it ruined my day. I went to a party right after, and I'm like, my whole party was ruined. I just I I barely <laughs> talked to my wife, which is probably not that's probably my fault, not anybody else's. But yeah, like no, it was it was just despicable. So listen, if it works for you, it's a good strategy. I don't know how to say this, Ev. The Mets losing really dictates how my days go. No, dude, I feel you, man. I've gotten better with this where there was a time in my life where the Mets losing would just screw me up completely. I've done a better job of realizing I I have to move on. I've got two kids and I have a wife. I can't really let this ruin my life. I have to have greater perspective that it's just sports and it's entertainment. So I feel like in 2023, I'm in a healthier place than I was in, say, 2009. In 2009, I wasn't married. I was dating at the time. But when Luis Castillo dropped the pop-up, I was at Yankee Stadium with a guy who's friends with you and I, my good friend Chad, and he took me to the game. Like, Chad, it was his effing tickets, and he took me to the game. And I'll never forget every moment about that. As Castillo is trying to stare down A-Rod's pop-up, Chad is congratulating me. I'm hitting his hand away saying he's in trouble. He's in trouble. He's in trouble. And then Luis obviously drops the pop-up. We all know what happens. I turn to him, comatose, and say, I'm not driving you home. (laughs) And he handled it very well that night. But I do think deep down he was pretty pissed at me. Like, are you kidding me? I took you to the game. You were going to drive me home. And now you're not driving me home because you're pissed off about the result. And I always felt bad about that. And I've apologized to him many times, including oh, wait, on the really, radio. You really didn't drive him home? I didn't drive him home. <laughs> what a dick. I know. Oh, dude, bro, I acknowledge that. But that's, that's an example of how the Mets really did run my life more so than they do now. Like now, yeah, I'm annoyed. You know, I, I, we're recording this right after they lost the series, right after game four. I took my son to the game. 
I took Jet to the game. I didn't stop talking to him on the car ride home. I actually had a good chat with him, and I think this is very, very important. And maybe this is me looking for the positives in what is one of the most awful seasons in the history of the Mets. I said to him, I said, Jet, I want you to understand something. The Mets are a lot like life. Things do not come easy. They don't. And last year, your first like real year from start to finish of understanding the Mets, of watching some games, of scoring some games, it came too easy. 101 wins is not normal. Not for the teams we root for. And remember, the other sport he's really into, because football, he's had a tough time understanding. Football, I think, is a more complicated game for a five- and six-, seven-year-old. He loves basketball. And, oh, Kevin Durant. Ooh, Kyrie Irving. It looked like it was going to come easy. And we all know what happened there. I'm not going to do a podcast on the Nets, but you know it imploded. And he learned very early on that didn't come easy, and now things are bad or things aren't, you know, great. And he's learning that about the Mets. And I said it to him in the car tonight, Thursday night, whenever you're listening to this. I said, no matter how bad this gets, you have to understand something, Jet. I've seen worse, and I'm still a Met fan. Are you still going to be a Met fan? And he said, yeah. I said, this may get way worse. We may start trading players. Remember that whole trading Kevin Durant thing? He's like, yeah. I said, but you know what? We never rooted for Kevin Durant. We rooted for the Nets. We're not rooting for name the player. We're rooting for the Mets. And many years from now, every goddamn guy who's on the roster right now, I didn't say goddamn, every goddamn guy, I'm saying it for the podcast, they're going to be gone. They ain't going to be on the team. Will you still be a Met fan? And he said, yeah. So he's learning a lesson. Let us all learn a lesson. This is not going to come easy. Now, for Pete, who's in his 40s, for me, who's about to turn 40, we're due. For Sal Akata, we're due. But for our youngins, nah. They got to learn the hard way. They got to watch bad, crappy baseball. So, yeah, it sucks for me. It sucks for you. It sucks for most people listening. But for the six-year-old, for the seven-year-old, for the three-year-old, for the nine-year-old, yeah. Yeah, losing's a big part of being a sports fan, man. But but my question to you is this, and here's the, the issue that I struggle with, first of all. You do know this. My whole family in my household, there's, there's five of us. Four of them are all Yankee fans. Like, everybody else is a Yankee fan. So I'm in this by myself in this household, so it sucks. I Everyone's like, why don't you try to convince them to be Mets fans? Why do I want them to suffer this with me? Because if they win, when they win, it'll be that much sweeter. That's why. You're look. You're in a much. Di- you're in a difficult spot because I own the household when it comes to sports fandom, and my wife knows it. That <laughs> even though my father-in-law is a Yankee fan and is a Giant fan and is a Nick fan, my wife knows there are other things I will follow suit on. But when it comes to the teams that the family roots for, I'm at least going to try to place them in the right direction. You know, if if uh, Spence wakes up and says, I'm going to root for the Minnesota Vikings, what the hell am I going to do? I'm going to try. I'm going to root for the Cincinnati Reds. I'm going to try to guide them back. But I'll never force my kids. But I will have the, I guess, the uh, the influencer, if you will. You're in a different spot because you got a household of Yankee fans. And the youngin sees that and says, I'm going to root for the Yankees. Oh, they had a perfect game on a Wednesday night. 
This seems like fun. They're in the playoffs every year. This is great. So your situation is much more difficult. I I, I acknowledge that. That ain't easy. No, it's that not. Especially, especially when we go to what I do take them because I'm still a good dad. I do take them to Mets games, but I take them to plenty of Yankee games. And every time we go, and when Aaron Judge plays, he obviously he's hurt right now. But when he does play, he always hits a home run. Nah, it's it's, ama- it's, a, it's I, amazing. So it's whatever. Let's, let's I get it. Let's go back to the depressing Mets. Jesus, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> How many Mets fans after the Tuesday win? thought to themselves, okay, now it's turning around. Okay, now David Peterson won a game. The Mets hit a bunch of home runs. Kodai Seng is on the mound. Steve Cohen's about to meet the media. Everything's going to turn around and look great. And it's funny, Cohen meets the media on Wednesday, and we'll get to what he said coming up. And the immediate response was to be down 2 nothing. That that's, that's what made me laugh. The immediate response, not that Kodai Senga hate Steve Cohen. I think Jesse Winker just hates all of us because Jesse Winker is like a mini Met killer, and he's the one that got the big two-out, two-run double in the first inning to put the Brewers immediately up 2 nothing. Now, the Mets did fight back, which we know make Buck Showalter very proud. Tommy Pham in a home run. They got the bases loaded walk by Francisco Alvarez. But that fourth inning, that fourth inning, and we saw a little bit of that in Game 4 of this series as well, but the fourth inning of Game 3, is just exactly what kills the New York Mets and has killed this Mets team all year long. They've scored four and a half runs per game, which is a very average number. They are middle of the pack offensively. But it feels like there have been so many situations, like what we saw in game three, where they are set up for a big inning. They are set up to break a game open, and they come up so small. They are down two to one. They have the bases loaded and nobody out. And Francisco Alvarez has a great at-bat. For a guy that's in a massive batting slump, he had a really patient at-bat against Wade Miley. And he laid off some very close pitches and drew a bases loaded walk. And the Mets had tied the game at two. And Wade Miley, who throws strikes mostly, walked three guys in the inning. The bases are loaded and nobody out. And the Mets have Beatty, Canna, and Mendick coming up. And I thought this in the moment, and I was, I did not watch this game at three o'clock in the morning. I was probably about a half hour behind. I went back to my old ways. I got home. I kissed my wife. I said, ah, I'm going to start the Met game. And so I started the game after getting back from work, half hour late, whatever it is. And I said to myself in this moment, because I can't tweet, God forbid I tweet an hour. What, what the hell am I tweeting? The results are already in from that inning. So it's more me thinking to myself. And you have to trust I actually thought this. But I thought to myself, self, if they don't break the game open, forget take the lead. Forget take the lead. If they don't break the game open right now, they're going to lose this game. Because, again, remember where we are. It's the fourth inning. Kodai Senga has thrown a million pitches. And more on him in a second. Kodai Senga is not long for the world which means the Mets are going to be going to their bullpen relatively early. It is right now a 2-2 game in the fourth. If they don't end this inning up 5-2 at least, 5-2, not 3-2, not 4-2, we're aft and we're not going to win. Brett Beatty, who's done a fair job against lefties, remember he had the double against Miley, one inning earlier, strikes out looking with the bases loaded. And then Mark Canna on a 2-2 pitch. It's a ball that off the 
that, I'm thinking sneaking through for a base hit, and it's gobbled up by Brian Anderson, and they turn the most awkward-looking 5-4-3 double play you'll ever see. And as that happens, and yes, it's 2-2, it's only the fifth inning, you're at home, they still have a shot, we all knew the result. We all knew it was so freaking over. Dunzo. Kaput. See you later. And that is a depressing feeling, but it's happened a lot. Like how many times, and not to jump ahead to game four, but it was the same thing in game four. Like you have these golden opportunities. If you don't take advantage of it, it seems like that's their one shot. And so Canna grounds into a double play. They don't score with the bases loaded, nobody out. And Kodai Senga gives you one more inning because that's all he was going to be able to give you. And look, Kodai Senga has not had a bad year. He has not had a great year. I'd say he's had an okay season. We all know his issues. We all know the problem. He walks way too many guys. He only walked two guys uh, the other night, but he has led the league in walks. So he puts way too many guys on base. He throws a million pitches. His performance on Wednesday, the only reason I'd say it was better than okay was because it was only his second start on regular rest. So if you're looking for a step in the positive direction was he made a start on regular rest and he didn't get bombed like he did in his other start on regular rest. And he got through a very shaky first inning, but he just throws a million pitches. And what makes that very troublesome is that this is a not a good bullpen and it's a bullpen that gets used a lot. So Kodai Senga, who has, again, not had a bad year. He's got a three and a half ERA. He's thrown 82 innings, so he's on pace to give you about 165, 170 innings. He's made just about every start, even though they've finagled his days and pushed him back. He has showed a lot of balls. I'll give him that. He shows guts. He can make the big pitch when he needs to. But it's frustrating because they need more. This rotation needs more. So he's only able to go five, mainly because his pitch count's ballooning up at such a high level. So it's a 2-2 game. He hands the ball to the bullpen, and look what happens. Grant Hartwig comes in. He had looked good so far in his brief time up here, and he immediately gives up that leadoff double to Owen Miller. And then two batters later, he's given up the base hit to Blake Perkins, and I think we all had the same feeling, very similar to what happened on Monday when Joey Weimer hit the home run. That's it. That's it. The bullpen gave up a run, and that's one too many. And we're done. And the Mets would get a base runner every inning against that Brewer bullpen, but they were never able to put anything together. They were never able to get that same opportunity they got in the fourth inning when they had the bases loaded. Pete Alonso has been very, very quiet. Francisco Lindor has actually been very good, even though he's been quiet the last couple of games, actually been hot since his daughter was born. Starling Marte's back to being a mess, and Buck Showalter's kept him in the two-hole. And the offense, which again, has been average. That's what the offense has been this year. Their pitching has been bad. Their offense has been average. Not saying it's good enough, but with capable pitching, the offense wins you a few more games than they have. Because think about all the losses they've had when they've scored six runs. But over the last two games of this series, the offense did not do enough. You scored two runs in the first four innings against Wade Miley. You had the bases loaded, nobody out. You get to the Brewer bullpen right after that because Miley's pulled. And one tiny, itsy-bitsy mistake to Blake Perkins is basically the game. Look, we can get nuts about the eighth inning. 
and what happened in the eighth inning with Adam Ottavino coming in with one out and nobody on and just crapping all over himself, giving up the double to Brian Anderson, the walk to Blake Perkins, which was the killer, and then hitting Joey Weimer to set up the Christian Yelich two-run single. And we can get nuts about the non-check swing, check swing from Joey Weimer that eventually got Buck thrown out of the game. But here's the sad reality. None of it mattered because they couldn't score a goddamn run. None of it mattered. Yeah, it was frustrating when Yelich got that two-run single. And yes, I'm screaming, hey, Jeff, can you at least knock that ball down? Or hey, Jeff, can you make a stellar defensive play and bail out of Eno out? And yes, hey, Ron Culpa, it's clear that Joey Weimer swung at that pitch and it wasn't a hit batsman. And yes, it changes the inning. And yes, those two runs shouldn't have scored. I'll be the first to tell you. But they're down 3-2 in the bottom of the eighth instead of down 5-2. Does any, to quote Hillary Clinton, what difference would it have made? What context? What was that about? Oh, that was Benghazi. I shouldn't, you know, I don't want to joke about that. But she did say that. She said, what difference does it make? Well, in this case, what difference does it make? They're down 3-2 in the eighth inning against Joel Piamps. They ain't scoring. They're down 3-2 in the ninth to Devin Williams. He isn't going to even break a sweat. So, yeah, I was frustrated by that eighth inning. I don't want to act like I wasn't because in the moment, I want the game to be a one-run game. But this offense was limp. The only guy, I can't believe I'm saying this, but it's, it's the truth. The only guy in this offense who consistently night in and night out gives you quality at-bats, gets on base. He went three for three in game three of this series. He was on base four times. It's Tommy Pham. Tommy Pham has very quietly earned team MVP votes. And that's disgusting. That's how you know you're having a crappy year. You're having a crappy year because, look, no matter how bad your team is, there's a team MVP, at least in my mind, right? And no matter what year it is, go back to 2009, there's a team MVP. Go back to 1993, there's a team MVP. In 2023, there'll be a team MVP till they trade his ass. But Tommy Pham, night in, night out. So we can't complain. In fact, let's take this a step further. I'm going to be honest with you. Until we get to the point of just play the kids, and that's coming. I want to make that clear. The just play the kids moment is coming where we don't care about wins anymore. And it's simply, I want to see these guys. We're not there, but we're close. We're still trying to win games, right? You're still trying to win games? Tommy Pham should be batting second. Second. Starling Marte needs to be moved out of that two-hole like he did three months ago. I mean, if, we, if we're being real here, we're talking about winning baseball games. Tommy Pham should be hitting second. Now, look, game three of this series, Tommy Pham was batting fifth. Game four of this series, Tommy Pham is batting fifth. So I'm not downgrading where he's sitting in the lineup. The problem is they don't have enough good, consistent hitters, so you almost have to pick your poison. I'd hit him in the two-hole over Starling Marte. That's for damn sure. Am I crazy? Uh, no, especially the way that Marte ended the uh, game four. It was just brutal, dude. Oh. I mean, did he swing at a strike? Was there a strike? Did Devin Williams throw a strike in the ninth inning? I mean, I'm, I'm seriously asking you that. It's almost as if, and let's jump right to game four, because that's the story of game four. Well, Max Scherzer, too. We'll get to him. But let's start with Starling Marte. Starling Marte had one of the worst one for fives I've ever seen. 
don't know if I've ever seen a worse one for five than I saw from Starling Marte. Beginning of this game, Brandon Immo draws a walk, grounds into a tailor-made 6-4-3 double play. Has a hard-hit single in the third. Can't take anything away from him on that right after the back-to-back home runs. His strikeout in the fifth. (laughs) The strikeout in the fifth was as if I took a major league at-bat against Adrian Hauser. That's how overmatched and messy Starling Marte looked. It was so bad. I mean, he's flailing and missing. He's given like half check swings. What the hell was that? Then he comes up in the seventh inning right after the Brewers had just taken the lead. The bases are loaded. Brandon Nimmo just got hit by a pitch. He's all excited. And Starling Marte does the one thing he cannot do. And that is ground into the easiest double play in the history of baseball. Terang is just standing there by the base as he picks it up, steps on the bag, and throws to first. But here's what's crazy. He was given a reprieve because in the bottom of the ninth inning, Devin Williams walks Brandon Nemo. This is after he walked Mark Hanna. This is after he gave up a nice crisp, crisp single to Francisco Alvarez. This is after Mark Hanna stole third. And Starling Marte had a chance to bail out Buck Showalter. Why? I'll get to that in a second, too. And he strikes out on three pitches. And no, Pete, he didn't swing at a strike. It's almost as if Starling Marte had a game plan. I'm going to swing three times, and I'm going to hope, I'm just going to hope that I get one of those air benders from Devin Williams and I hit the crap out of it. And if I don't, well, we all go to bed because that was a good morning, good afternoon, and good night situation if you've ever seen one. And with a fired-up city field because it was loud and the base is loaded and a chance to have a dramatic victory that's not going to save the season but at least give us some good feeling He strikes out on three pitches in a meek, meek fashion. And that's why if there's one guy to rip today, you know, I think on the last Rico, I spent a lot of time ripping Jeff McNeil, which I I could do again. Now he's, oh, he had a a double. Great. What about his three other at-bats, including swinging at the first pitch against Devin Williams in the ninth inning? Like, we could rip Jeff McNeil all day. Today's about Starling Marte. Today's about Mr. Two-Hitter, Starling Marte. He left seven men on base. In game four of this series, seven, two bases loaded situations, a double play with one out and a strikeout in which he basically closed his eyes and said, I'm going to swing three times and I'm going to hope good things are going to happen. And he heard it from the crowd after the game and he should for as good as he was last year. And as fired up as we was when he came back from that injury early, he has been miserable. We make that list of why the Mets suck this year. He's he's high up on the list, man. And that was a brutal at-bat to end that game. Oh, And it's funny. I don't know if you caught this at all. And I it was while Marte, I think, was stepping up to the plate. But there was a woman in the crowd, I think, uh, who was, who just walked before him. It was... Um, Brandon Nemo. Nemo, right, yeah. A woman in the crowd was yelling, stop swinging at everything. Because that's what they were like. Even Nimmo was like swinging at pitches. I'm like, dude, they're not close to the like. Everything's dipping low. Everything's out of the zone. Like, just let it go. Devin Williams is very, very tough to hit, and I think the Mets have certainly they've shown you that in this four game series when 
two of his saves was without breaking a sweat, at least in this save. Oh, at least they battled. <laughs> I give you a buckism. But no, Devin Williams is elite, so I think it's easier said than done. Don't swing, don't swing. But I get your point. Like the Mets were, their pitch selection against Devin Williams was brutal. There's no question. No doubt. And, and it was a small part of me when Marte got up, and I'm glancing over at my son fired up, and the crowd's rocking, that thought, all right, at least we're going to get a good moment. Not that it's going to turn the season around. Not that I was going to sit here on the Rico. Hey, this is the moment. This is the game. But there was that small part of me that thought, maybe he's going to come through. Maybe this is going to be the big hit. And it didn't happen. Now, let me get to my issue with Buck. And I and I assume we're all going to have the same issue. I assume we're all together on this. So it really all started back in the seventh inning of this game. Hobie Milner is Craig Council's like baby. He loves him. Side-arming, really submarining left-handed pitcher. And Hobie Milner is very, very tough on lefties. And a night earlier, he made Brett Beatty look awful. I want to make that clear. He did. So Hobie Milner comes into this game in the seventh inning to face Vogelbach, Alvarez, and Beatty. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Buck chooses to pinch hit for Vogelbach with Mark Hanna. Great. Mark Hanna singles. Mets are in business. Alvarez just missed a two-run home run. Hit one a deep right center field. I thought Alvarez looked better at the plate. He had some issues defensively. We'll get to that. But he looked better at the plate and just missed a two-run home run. Now, here's the tricky spot, because I want to cover all ends of this stuff. Brent Beatty is due to hit with a runner on first and one out, and the Mets are down a run. Brett Beatty has done as well against lefties as he has against righties. We, we have acknowledged that. We also have to acknowledge, if we're being fair, that Hobie Milner made Brett Beatty look very bad a night earlier. And that's clearly on Buck's mind. The problem with pinch hitting for Beatty is not, I hate Mendick versus Milner. That's not it. My issue is it's the seventh inning. And because it's the seventh inning and I'm looking at my scorecard, there's a very likely scenario that that spot in the order is going to come up again. And if that spot in the order comes up again and it's a close game, you're likely to be facing a right-handed pitcher, which means Danny Mendick is either either getting another at-bat, and remember he doesn't have a hit yet for the Mets at this point against a righty, or you're going to Luis Guillorme or Omar Narvaez. That's what bothered me. I want to make that clear. Mendick for Beatty against Milner, I understand. Like, I get, I'm not saying I love it, but I get it. Beatty looked overmatched against Hobie Milner the night before, and it's likely the same thing happens. But because it's the seventh inning, I'm thinking about the next at-bat. Like, this, to me, wasn't going to be the ninth spot in the order's final at-bat. So when he sends up Mendick, I had an issue with it, more so for the ninth than I did in the seventh. Now, Mendick bailed Buck out because he hits a ground. Well, actually, let me let me rephrase that. Mendick did not bail Buck out. Brian Anderson's defense bailed Buck out because Mendick hits a ground ball to third that should be a double play. It's booted by Brian Anderson. Canna goes first to third, great aggressive base running by him, and the Mets are set up with first and third one out. So the move in the short term, great. No, no harm, no foul. 
obviously that led to the first issue with Marte because after Nimmo gets hit, bases loaded, one out, double play. We all know that. We already addressed it. So now the game rolls on. And here we go in the ninth inning. And as I'm looking at who's due up in the ninth, I'm thinking, you see, this is the problem. McNeil, Canna, Alvarez, and if anyone gets on base, Danny Mendick. So what happens? The Mets shockingly get a base runner against Devin Williams. They got two. And so they're set up with first and third, one out for Danny Mendick. Except Buck realizes, well, that's not a good option. I guess I'll go to Luis Guillorme, which I get. Fine. But that's why you don't pinch it for Beatty two innings earlier. Now, in the seventh inning, sure, you're doing everything you can to try to tie the game up because the Mets are down by a run. Sure. Yes, I know that. But you also had to figure this was going to happen. You got to think ahead. I'm thinking ahead. We're all thinking ahead. And so it leads to first and third, one out, Luis Guillorme. And we know what happens. He hits the little ground ball to first base. The runner advances. Canna can't score. Comes down to Nemo. He draws a walk. Comes down to Marte. He strikes out. If Brett Beatty's up in that spot, I have no idea what happens. None of us do. He could hit a game-winning home run. He could ground into an effing double play. I have no idea. But we all agree. Beatty is a much better option than Luis Guillorme or Danny Mendick. So I hated that decision by Buck in the seventh inning. Now, I, I hated it too. And again, when Yorme's up, I'm like, I was actually begging in the ninth inning for like, I wish Vogelback was still in the game to, 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 to just look at pitches and not swing. But here's <laughs> the pro- here's the problem, Ev. And we've, I've ta- we've talked about this so many times. And and when they traded Escobar and Mendick got the call up, the first thing I said was, you don't need two Guillormes on the team. And that's what Danny ben- Mendick is. They're, they continue to cripple themselves. Well, yeah, because if it's Vientos, like you had suggested, because you mentioned it, you're like, why Mendick, why not Vientos? You're right. The Mets offensively in this game have a much better option. If Mark Vientos is pinch hitting for Brett Beatty against Toby Milner, we're all probably not angry about it. And then you probably let Vientos hit in that ninth inning against Devin Williams. And again, who knows? You know, maybe he comes through, maybe he doesn't, but I think we all feel better about it. The problem is if they're not going to play Mark Vientos every single day, then yeah, while he may be a better pinch hit option off the bench that Mendick is, do you really want him sitting there to rot? And that's the issue because he's still a prospect. I saw something very weird about Mark Vientos. Not very weird, but something that tells you, I think, a lot about what the issue is or what the Mets issue is with Mark Vientos. Because I can't tell you I agree with it. I'm not saying I do. I'm just saying this is clearly the Met problem. Mike Puma, who is a very good beat reporter for the Mets, New York Post, put something out the other day that spoke to me. And I'm going to read it to you. Mark Vientos has impressed Mets officials with his attitude since returning to AAA Syracuse. His work ethic and mindset are said to be in the right place with the understanding he'll get an opportunity in the majors at some point. So you see that tweet by Puma and you say, well, that's great. That's that's fantastic. That's not great. Why do you have to point out that his attitude, his work ethic, and his mindset is so great? Almost as if it wasn't. Almost as if 
that's been the problem. And, and uh, maybe it is. I don't know. We're not in the locker room. Maybe Mark Vientos had an attitude problem or a mindset problem. But that's a very passive-aggressive way of the Mets kind of getting the message out by having a beat reporter compliment what Met officials say about Vientos now as if that wasn't the case a month ago or six weeks ago. So I thought that that tweet basically told us all we need to know about what the Mets think of Vientos. They think he has an attitude problem. Yeah, well, I think the Mets have a, a development problem and they can't evaluate talent problem and not for nothing, but I would be a dick too if I was Mark Vientos getting called up and not and playing three out of six games to start the season or start to start the season with, uh, you know, get when I get called up and then pitch hitting every couple of games and not really getting a fair shot. I, I totally get it too. And listen, I get it. There's vets on the team, but they suck. They haven't performed. And you call up a guy to sit on the bench. We've all discussed it. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. They, they treated him like crap. They handled him like crap. And if he was here right now in that kind of crap role, the Mets would have been better off in the short term because they would have had a better bench piece to come off the bench and pinch it for Brett Beatty against Hobie Milner in a one-run game. Now, let's find out why we had a one-run game. We had a one-run game because Max Scherzer, and I know it's tough to kill him because he's pitched a lot better, and at the end of the day, six innings, two runs is a solid performance, but it still bothers me. It bothers me that he had a 2 nothing lead. It bothers me that for some reason Vic Caratini owns him. Vic Garrettini is Max Scherzer's daddy. It bothers me that in the sixth inning with a two-run lead, Vic Caratini, of all people, is hitting the game-tying two-run home run. It just felt very typical Max Scherzer. I know he can't be perfect every single game. He can't go eight scoreless innings or seven scoreless innings. But watching him like he did on opening day against the Marlins, flush a lead by giving up a two-run or three-run home run, it's very frustrating. It just is. So I know the game isn't on Max Scherzer. I get it. Six innings, two runs at the end of the day is solid. But he's paid to not equal Adrian Hauser. And he did. Adrian Hauser went six innings, two runs. Great. Uh, That's what it was. He's paid to be an ace. And aces don't sit there with a two-run lead in the sixth inning and give up a two-run home run to a backup catcher. And that's what he did. So overall, was Max Scherzer okay on Thursday? It was fine. It was all right. But he flushed the lead. Didn't help that the Mets couldn't do anything offensively outside of the home runs. Brett Beatty hit a home run. Brandon Nimmo went opposite field. And that was the only offense that they had. And the defense was just... Okay, a couple of things. Max Scherzer and Francisco Alvarez combined on a bunt pop-up by, I think it was Bryce Terang in the second inning. I think that's when it happened. He lays down a bunt. It's popped up. And Alvarez and Scherzer are all going after it. And Scherzer and Alvarez run into each other. And my first reaction, I know it's going to be so predictable because I hate Max Scherzer. My first reaction is, Max, Can you let Francisco Alvarez make the play? Problem is, a few innings later, Francisco Alvarez said to me, no, Evan, you're an idiot, because he dropped a foul pop-up from uh, Blake Perkins, which turned out to be no harm, no foul, because they got the out anyway. But it was just another one of those messy defensive performances, because both mistakes turned out not to kill them. 
So it's easily forgettable. But when you're watching it, it's not aesthetically pleasing. Scherzer and Alvarez combining and Alvarez dropping a pop-up. Overall, I want to compliment Alvarez, though. He's been going through this massive offensive slump. I thought he had a better offensive day in game four. As I mentioned, he had the base hit in the ninth inning. He almost hit a home run in the seventh inning. I think overall his defense, though, has been good. I'm not talking about pop-ups. I'm talking about calling games. I'm talking about his pitch framing. It is not something that's affected him on the defensive side. And I think we all agree. He's just got to go out there every single day. Despite the batting average drop, he's got to go out there, and he's just got to play. He's still a rookie. He's still extremely young. He's still the future behind the plate. Go out there and play. You know, the Met offensive issues can't be traced necessarily to one guy. It's a collective problem. But it's more Starling Marte. It's more Pete Alonso, who's done very little. It's more Jeff McNeil on why this team has struggled offensively the last two days. But it's kind of like what Steve Cohen said in this press conference and something we've said a lot. They are such a bad team. Last year, they were the opposite in that they would always find ways to win and they'd pick each other up. And now it's the opposite. They'll find ways to lose. One day it'll be the offense. One day it'll be the pitching. One day it'll be the defense. One day it'll be the manager. The last week has shown you that. Look at the way they lost Sunday. Look at the way they lost Monday. Look at the way they lost Thursday. Look at the way they lost Wednesday. It's so, hey, we're just going to find a million different ways to lose. We're going to have a different person for you guys to rip after every single series loss. Some days it'll be Jeff McNeil. Remember Francisco Lindor used to kill him. Now it's Starling Marte. It'll be Pete Alonso real soon. It'll be the overrated aces, as we've seen. It'll be the bullpen. It'll be the manager. Just brutal. Man, they just, they're a bad team. And as we approach July, that's what they are. It's no longer, well, there's half a season to go. There's 80% of the season to go. No, no. This is who they are. They're a bad team. And I think even you, Pete, have come around to that. Yeah, well, it uh, it put me in a bad spot, by the way, because now I'm trying to save the season myself. I don't know if I you know. I cut your hair? Ain't going to work. It's <sighs> too late. Well, I'm going to give it a shot. At least uh, tomorrow at 12, I'm I'm shaving my head for, for the Mets' sake. Here's why I do have a question for you, though, because, I listen, I, there's no positive in this season right now, but I do have an issue with the umpires and MLB – do, do they have it out for Scherzer? Do, I feel like there's always <laughs> an issue with everything. This time they're, they're saying that, like, his pitch calm, there was an issue, and yeah. that, like, technically it was a balk. Was, what, was that what they're trying to say? They were saying that he starts his he starts his windup. When he, I, I, you know what? I saw the quotes from Max. I At this point, until he makes his next start, I don't care. Like that, That's my attitude towards it. I saw him talking to the umpire, and I assumed, like we all did, that it probably had to do with sticky stuff. It had to do with, is this enough? Are your hands too sticky? Max Scherzer is a great competitor. He is. He's a Hall of Famer, and he he's very big, a very big union guy. And so there is that thought that MLB hates him, which I know they do, by the way. I know that for a fact. They do not like Max Scherzer. Are they telling umpires, give him a hard time? I don't know. I don't know if the umpires are necessarily doing that, 
but it can look that way because the league doesn't like him. That I could tell you for certain. They don't like Max Scherzer. Is that extending to umpires going after every little thing he does? I don't know if I'd go that far. I don't know if the umpires are in cahoots necessarily with Rob Manfred. Well, and what, they don't like him because of he's a union leader and that he tries to do the best by the players? Is that what it is? So I think they felt that Scott Boris and Max is a Scott Boris guy was basically running the union and that there was a split maybe on some of the issues that the union had. And the Scott Boris camp with Max Scherzer being the mouthpiece was maybe the side of the players that was more difficult to deal with. I think that was the inherent issue. I don't think it's simply we hate player. We hate all player. He's a player leader. No, I think it had more to do with the Boris connection, but whatever. Look, Max ain't going to be here forever. That was the other thing Max did this week. Leaking out, hey, I'll be good with a, a trade. If we don't turn things around, I'll be open to waving my no trade. And here's what's funny about that. That's good for the Mets. Having as many options as you have going into the trade deadline is a good thing. Doesn't mean they're going to trade him. Doesn't mean they should trade him. Doesn't mean they're going to get a top prospect back. Doesn't mean they should. But I like that. Scherzer wouldn't hold him hostage by saying, no way, no how. I'm here. I don't give a damn what prospect you can get. So I appreciate that he'll be okay with it. But on June 29th, to hear Max Scherzer, even though he didn't say it verbatim, we didn't hear it from him, but to hear that his camp is open to waiving the no trade sounds like a guy who knows it's over. Sounds like a guy who's basically quitting. I read a quote from Tommy Pham where I sort of felt the same way about it. Uh, and then I read more of the quote and I felt a little bit better. Tommy Pham said, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm traded. And there was a part of me when I first read it that said, ah, here we go. This guy's quitting too. And then Pham went on to say, I really like it here. And I just know it's a tough business. I did not have a good year last year and I got traded at the deadline and this business sucks. So he was talking more openly about I have no control over it. I can see them trading me. I really like being here. And he went out of his way to say the fans are tough, but I like that because they demand winning. And then he made a funny comment about how expensive his condo is. And that, well, if they're going to trade me, you know, I, I did get a very expensive condo. <laughs> Tommy, you're making $6 million a year. You're doing all right. You're doing no, I don't okay. Feel, I don't feel bad. Did you, so did you see the, the comments from Scherzer again today after the game? They specifically asked him about uh being potentially being traded and he just doubled down with the it's Steve Cohen it's on him if if right now we're under contract and I can't even think of, I can't comment on this because it's just all clickbait I'm not going to do that but it's I'm 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 here I'm Steve Cohen's wait on him basically Max Scherzer and Justin <laughs> and Justin Ver more so Max Scherzer than Justin Justin's still so new here um, I don't know what his wife thinks, what Kate Upton thinks about living here. I think with Max Scherzer, of course he would accept a trade. I mean, he's a mercenary. And when you're a mercenary, he's here to get paid and try to win. Now, he's getting paid, and he's going to get paid no matter what because these contracts are guaranteed, and they're not winning, of course. So I think we'll have more discussions about this down the road on if it's worth trading these guys because I don't think it's as simple as just dump their ass. Uh, there's a lot of complications to it. It's what do you think that guy would be for the 2024 New York Mets? It would be what kind of prospect are you getting back? Like there's a lot of factors and we'll certainly have a lot of time for it. Let me get to Steve Cohen.
And then we'll get to some of your emails because the emails made me laugh. There's some good ones, uh, usually during games. So a lot of them during the finale of the series against the Brewers. As far as Cohen's concern, and I said a little bit of this on the air, I'm so happy he owns this team. He's a lot better than the Wilpons. The Wilpons were a disgrace of an ownership, and I'm glad they're gone. But, and I'll go into more detail about this than I did on the air. Herbert Hoover was not a great president. And Herbert Hoover is blamed for the Depression. Just hear me out, Pete. Don't give me that look. All right? And I think we all know, history tells us, yeah, Herbert Hoover had a lot to do with the Depression. Right? It's accepted, even if you want to argue with me about it. Because I don't think it was fully on him, but whatever. FDR would bring up Herbert Hoover all the time. And at first, I understood it. Like, okay, he wanted to beat him in an election, and he did bring up Herbert Hoover. Now he inherits this horrible economy, and he brings up Herbert Hoover. But look it up. For all those elections that Roosevelt kept winning, he would always go back to how bad Herbert Hoover was. And after a while, I think a reaction would be, I agree, but I'm sick of hearing about it. And I use that analogy because no one wants to hear a more recent analogy because everybody will get offended. But this has happened for a very long time with presidents where it's it's that guy's fault. Give me time. And at first, you could agree with them. You could say, yes, you're right. It was that guy's fault. But after a while, you say, I don't want to hear that anymore. You're the president. Herbert Hoover is not president anymore. More and he hasn't been president for how many years? So stop talking about him. So when Steve Cohen talked about what he inherited, he's right. I want to make that very, very clear. I am not pining for the Will Ponds, I am not defending the Will Ponds. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, I get it, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Like, I, you're right that they were behind the times when it comes to the pitching lab. You're right. You're right they didn't invest enough in the farm system and analytics. You're right. And I can't make it any more clear how thrilled I am that Steve Cohen owns the team. I'm thrilled he owns the team. He's willing to spend. He wants to win. All of that's true. But when I'm sitting there in late June watching a team crumble, I don't need to hear about this anymore. So that's my only view. Because I, I, I said that on the air. The other day, and I hear from some, oh, you love the Wilpons now? No, I don't love the Wilpons now. There's nothing about me saying what I said that has to do with loving the Wilpons. It has to do with moving on. It has to do with, let's talk about why this isn't working. Yeah, we get why you had to buy a lot of pitchers because they left you with nothing. Oh, I get it. But nobody expected this team to be on its way to playing a relevant baseball in July. What are you going to do about it? Not what kind of mess did you inherit? So I didn't love that. I think he's going to spend. I've got no indication he's going to stop spending. He did in the Eduardo Escobar trade. He alluded to doing it potentially in a Scherzer or Verlander trade. Um, He did make one comment about, well, you know, I forget how he said it, but it was towards the end of the press conference where you don't want to continue to spend and lose. Well, yeah, but that, that that's not a sign that he's going to stop spending now. Obviously, if eight years in a row go by and he has an $800 million payroll and they lose 100 games every year, he may say this isn't working. 
but I don't have no indication that Cohen is going to stop spending. So I like that. His point about why Buck's not going to be fired. Let's address this. This is his opinion. And I think there's some validity to it. And that is if he fires a manager after a year and a half and he fires another general manager, that it's going to make it unappealing to take this job. And I think there's some truth to it. And I'll, I'll walk you through how. He fires Buck Showalter months after winning manager of the year. May make me happy, may make you happy. Maybe that last second desperation thing to spark the team. And then it doesn't work. And then David Stearns is hired. And they're clearly going to hire him. We'll get to that coming up too. It's going to be a long Rico today. I apologize. We're already an hour in and we got a lot more to do. I apologize. I'm sorry. Can I tell you? Um, David Stearns has the job. He now calls up his friend Craig Council and says, hey, Craig, you're a free agent. I loved working with you. I'm going to hire a manager because now I'm running the show. And Craig says, I don't know, man. I just spent a decade with the Brewers. That guy just fired a manager months after winning manager of the year. I'm not sure I want to work there. And we could all poo-poo that all we want and say money talks and BS walks. And yeah, to some it may, but it is not necessarily good to be firing managers and firing general managers all the time. Is that enough of a reason to not fire Buck and not try to spark this team? I'm not saying it is, but Steve Cohen was very direct on why. And I understand that thinking because I do think that will affect many. And you got to ask yourself something too. Why have the Mets had such a difficult time attracting a president of baseball operations? Why? Is it the unknown of Steve Cohen? Is it the thought that Steve Cohen would fire a guy after a year or two? I think that's a part of it. So I think stability, as much as you don't want to be stable with bad people, like John Mara wanted to keep Joe Judge because I don't want to fire another coach after two years. Obviously, it was the right decision to fire a coach that clearly wasn't going to turn things around. So it's a tough position because you want to try something and you want to spark this team. But I get Cohen's point that it can be a major turnoff if they're just going to start firing people on a whim. Did you agree with All that, right. uh, Peter? Did you have an issue with that? I'm torn. And I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier on, but, but I'll get to this first. I'm torn because I do think that the team is just flat right now and they do need to change something. And expectate, like we do, we go back to the teams of like the Phillies and, you know, they, Fired Joe Girardi and then they went and took off. So the fact that that Cohen doesn't want to do that and doesn't want to risk the outlook on the team as like this is the type of owner I am. It's the big picture, but I hate that because look at last year during the trade deadline, they didn't make a big splash. They didn't make a big trade at the trade deadline, and look at this season; it's a crapshoot. You don't know when the, when things are gonna. Be good, be bad. So you have to strike while the iron's hot. And so, so that that bothers me. Yeah, the, the thing about the trade deadline is he has made very clear he's spending until they have a good farm system. They weren't then going to trade a lot of their farm system, even in a year in which they had a chance to win, to get talent. Where Billy Epler struggled last year was, if you remember what the Braves did in 2021, they didn't make big moves, but they made moves that made big impacts. 
if that if that makes sense. Like they didn't make right. the sexy trades. They made small trades and then guys helped them win a World Series. Billy Epler's trades all sucked. You know, it didn't well, work. Well, the the entire outfield was hurt and he had to replace everybody and they went and they brought in significant the at bats in the outfield. They they were was it Duval, they brought in I think it was Ozuna. Pete, was there. Pete, think about who those guys are. He didn't bring in superstars. You're right. No, you're right. That's my only point. Like, he brought in middling players that made superstar impact, which is a credit to what that trade deadline was, that those guys made the kind of impacts that they did. So I don't regret necessarily, because I get, I like Steve Cohen's plan of I'm going to spend until our farm system is ready. And then if we develop enough guys, I'm not going to need to have a $400 million payroll because I got all this young talent. He needed to spend pitching-wise. There's no doubt about it. They were left with an empty, barren farm system when it comes to young pitching. They, they're still working on it. Like, there are young guys that are on the horizon, but it's still barren for now, for 2023. Um, So I get that, and I get why they didn't want to trade those big prospects, but I'm sorry. I cut you off. Finish off with the uh, the manager stuff. No, no it's okay. Uh, listen, I... I I understand like the whole situation though, especially when it comes down to, to, to Billy Epler. Like he basically said that, you know, we, it, the, the, the roots reading to uh, reading towards like David Stern's going to be the baseball. Operations no doubt. Manager, no doubt. Okay. Billy Epler is not going to last long, but Steve Cohen's not going to be the guy to fire him. He's going to allow David Stern's to take control. And you say, Hey, if Billy's got to go, that's on you. If, 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 Buck's got to go. That's on you. I'm not doing that. It's on you. You're going to be the guy that's taking over the baseball operations department. <laughs> it does seem that Billy Epler may know this all along, that Steve Cohen knows David Stearns is the guy, knows David Stearns wants the job, knows he can't hire him until his contract expires at the end of this season. And so at this press conference, when he brought up on his own president of baseball operations, president of baseball operations, He's alluding to David Stearns without saying his name. And if that's the case, if this is the the secret everybody knows about, the way we've talked about it, then it's possible Billy Epler's known it since the day he's hired. That you're going to be the GM. You're going to get two years to make a lot of decisions. Not going to fire you, but David Stearns is going to come in and be your boss. And I think that is the expectation that we all have, that that's what's going to happen. And by the way, if that does happen, as I've said to you before, I think that means there is a really good chance there'll be a new manager because David Stearns is going to want to hire his own manager. I thought the press conference, and I said this ahead of time, it was going to be impossible to make me happy. Now, maybe it makes a lot of people listening to the Rico happy. I don't know. But nothing was going to change that they are a bad team that's well under 500. I, I don't blame the owner for the mistakes of this team. He's spending the money. That's one of the most important things you could have from an owner. The other thing is hiring the right people. That remains to be seen. Billy Epler doesn't feel like the right person. Buck Showalter was last year. He doesn't feel like it is this year. So I thought going into that press conference, it was going to be impossible to just make me happy. Like, I know he cares about the team. I didn't need some fake, like, oh, I'm, I'm mad. Like, he's a fan, of course. He owns the team. He's not thrilled that the team sucks. But he gave us an indication that he'll spend like George, but he's not going to be impulsive like George. And I think there are times where that's a good thing. 
And we're going to find out if there's some times where that's a bad thing. I know to a lot of Mets fans right now, it's a bad thing. So overall, the Cohen press conference, it's kind of like whenever an owner speaks or GM speaks when things are bad. There's nothing they can say that's going to change the results. Only actions can change things. That's it. Only actions. I love the action of the Escobar trade because he showed me, hey, I'm willing to pay down a contract on a player to better the return. And that's a far cry from what the Wilpons ever did. And that's the actions that matter, not as much the words. And look, the team didn't respond. If the team was paying attention to what Steve Cohen had to say, they responded by scoring four runs and going 0-2. That's how they responded, if that means anything. Well, you know, it's funny because I always was worried about the fact that he wasn't going to just start. Like, he's paying for James McCann's contract. Now he's paying for Escobar's contract. We saw him buy out Robbie Cano. And he literally has said, he goes, which is, again, you're right. He didn't say anything that's going to be significant to change things. But the reality is it reassures me. It's like he has no problem if he trades Marte away. The money he spent on Marte, he's already accepted the fact that it's spent. It doesn't make a difference to him. It's already gone. That's a good thing for future endeavors. No? So the no doubt about it. If this turns into a sell-off and – it seems likely that it is when making these decisions as fans on what we want, we got to keep something in mind. And that is next year. The plan is going to be to compete next year. The plan is not to rebuild completely. It's to retool. So when you decide to trade a guy, a guy who's a free agent, like Tommy fam is easy. Of course you trade Tommy fam. Of course. I don't think there's any doubt, but with a guy like Verlander or Scherzer or Marte, you have to say what I want the guy on my team next year. Can that guy help me next season? If you trade Max Scherzer and buy out his contract and get back a good prospect, you have to replace Max Scherzer in your rotation next year. You just got to keep that in mind. So when deciding should they trade this guy or trade that guy, you got to keep, hey, what about 2024? Here's the other thing we're going to find out about Steve Cohen. Is he repulsed by making a trade with the Yankees? And I ask that because this has nothing to do with the Yankees. If the Yankees can get a good player from the Mets, they'll make a trade with the Mets. A few years ago, I don't know if you remember, the Mets had a done deal uh, of trading Jay Bruce to the New York Yankees. Done deal. That's what I'd heard. It was, it was, it was happening. And apparently Jeff Wilpon put the veto on it because he didn't want Jay Bruce beating the Mets in a Subway Series game. And it was, it was absurd. And I remember as a fan saying, I don't care. This is me, by the way. And you have a right, everybody listening to say, I totally disagree, Evan. I don't give a rat's ass where I trade my guys. If I, if I get the best return, you can send them to the Yankees. You can send them to the Braves. I'll get the last laugh if the return is good enough. I've always viewed it that way. I, I wonder if Steve's going to view it that way. The Wilpons didn't. The Wilpons said, no, we're not making a trade with the Yankees. We're not. And by the way, making a trade with the Yankees to me is a lot easier than making a trade with the Braves because the Braves are in my division. So if I buy off Starling Marte's contract and send them to Atlanta, I may have to deal with them next year. If I do that with the Yankees, what do I deal with them? In the Subway Series? Who gives a rat's ass? Ah, well, wait, wait for realignment to happen. We play them uh, 13 <laughs> times a year. You'll, the, that well, you won't be too happy. 
Yeah, that's a different story. Then I'll have a very different opinion on it. And let me get to some of your emails. These were all sent during game four of this series against Milwaukee. Jeremy Clawson writes, Danny Mendick pinch hitting for Brett Beatty. It doesn't matter if it's Danny Mendick, Mike Nickius, Colin Cowgill. Oh, this guy is a righty. He needs to hit against the lefties. Does Matt McClain get pinch hit for? Does Corbin Carroll get pinch hit for? Does James Outman get pinch hit for? I, I think we are moving closer to that point where you got to let Brett Beatty face everybody. Because we are, even though in the cases that you mentioned, those guys are in pennant races. The Mets are about to be out of a pennant race. So I never want to hear about pinch hit scenarios. Like I mentioned earlier in this pod, my problem with pinch hitting for Beatty had more to do with what was going to happen in the eighth and ninth inning more so than what was going to happen in that seventh inning. Dan writes, Mets need an alpha. This franchise desperately needs someone to step up and call it out like it is. There's no one in that locker room that will call this crap out for what it is, which is unacceptable. And it's been that way for three years now. And when the owner has a chance to make a statement and change the way the franchise is viewed internally and externally by simply saying, I'm disgusted by the product that he's been put out on the field. If things don't improve ASAP, changes will be made. Instead, he gives everyone who's responsible for this job security for the rest of the season, no matter what. He sounded exactly like the BS I hear from everybody in the clubhouse each postgame. Until that type of mentality for the franchise changes, we'll be banging our heads against the wall every single year doing the exact same thing. I don't agree necessarily with the Cohen part because I don't think Cohen's saying, hey, I'll fire the manager if things don't turn around. I don't know if that does anything. The locker room, it's interesting. It's an interesting one. It's always very difficult to measure. But what I see as a fan is a gutless team. That's what I see, the way they play, the way they've responded to adversity. They have been gutless. Am I wrong? They get punched in the face by the Braves last year in a three-game series down the stretch, and they respond by losing meekly two out of three to San Diego. I thought it was gutless. This season, this season, they get swept by the Blue Jays after sweeping the Phillies. They go to Atlanta. They get embarrassed. How'd they respond? They responded by losing every series they've played since with the exception of a split. Gutless. So if they had Keith Hernandez in that locker room, does that change things? Maybe a little bit, but ultimately at the end of the day, you have to play better and their pitching is bad and they do everything to lose on a night out, night out basis. Lucas Saigon writes, Evan Hoff, thank you for the podcast. I mean, therapy session. I had to rewind to make sure I didn't mishear the great Buck Showalter. And he actually sent a video of this too. So he sent a video of something Buck Showalter said. All right. I'm looking at the video. Okay. Buck just responded to a question about the bases loaded situations and said they, quote, needed a swinging bunt or wild pitch or something to go their way. I like Buck, but is he legit asking for luck? That's the answer to our woes. How about letting Beatty hit and hope he gets lucky instead of Mendick, who actually got lucky that the ground ball he hit wasn't a double play over the paint? I guess uh, Buck said it. Let's take a listen. Eh, you can't hear it that well. I apologize. Uh, I trust him, but he did send the video. 
And if he said oh, the but, video, then it must be real, right? <laughs> yeah, Buck Buck has really just been losing me. Every he looks like he's aged so much in the past year compared to last year, where he looked like young and and just like new new lease on life to have this position. He looks like a beaten man. He really does. He's lost. Well, I think Buck takes the job very seriously. He is a planner. He always has been. Like he plans everything. And I think that that hotel room on the road after a loss, I don't think he just goes to sleep. I, I don't. I don't think he's checked out. I've heard people say that. I think he takes the job very, very seriously. And so, yeah, he's aging like a president. All right. If you've got kids in the car, mute this for a second. I want to give Ben A what he wants. And Ben A says, please read this email verbatim. So here you go, Ben. I fucking hate this team. There you go. That's for Ben. And this is the last one I'm going to read because the subject line is the Mets have ruined my life. So we'll end on that <laughs> note. James writes, the Mets have ruined my life. The Mets have ruined my life and have stamped me as a loser forever. I have two dogs named after the Mets and can't look at them because they're losers. <laughs> I got stunned over. I'm sorry. We're ending with a laugh, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. <laughs> The Mets have ruined my life and have stamped me as a loser forever. I have two dogs named after the Mets and can't look at them because they're losers. I have this stupid Mets tattoo that should just say I'm a loser. Worst of all, I got engaged at City Field, which likely means divorce, because anything that has to do with the Mets means failure and disappointment. As always, maybe next year. <laughs> I'm sorry, James. Who, who, who they, James? Good, good job, James. I love you. That, that's I'm a good email. I'm a fan of James. Yes, good <laughs> job, James. And to everybody else who emailed who I didn't get to, I apologize. All right, I'm sorry. Keep emailing the pod. Well, I, I like reading them throughout the. Uh, I think that's going to be our levity during these losses. Just going back to the emails that are sent in the midst of losses. The Rico B at gmail.com. We'll try to read as many as we can. We're sorry that this podcast was so long, but there was a lot to bitch about and a lot to complain about. And like I said at the beginning, no matter how bad this season gets, no matter how much the Mets are soon ignored by our own radio station, Rico Bronia is here and we are going nowhere. We will break down every meaningless effing loss until this goddamn season is over. And you can quote me. Thank you for listening to Rico Brony. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 